Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hey, let's go in our Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, we're in the middle of the Beatitudes. And uh, anybody remember what Beatitude means or where it comes from? Blessed. Where do we get our English word for Beatitude? Anybody remember? From what? Beatty? Yeah. Beatty, what's that? She's not a very good Latin. That's okay. I say Latin's a dead language. So I think you're good there. Yeah, beati, which is uh, the Latin version of um, this first word that we get blessed. Greek is uh, makarios. And we're, we're talking about a, a state of being that is belongs to those who are in the kingdom. As we... Um, we think about what we try to do on Wednesday night. I wanted to just mention uh, some of our priorities that we have. It's different than Sunday. Sunday, um, maybe it all seems the same, but uh, the hope on Wednesday night is a little bit different. It's that we, we take time to really dig into the Scriptures and understand it. Number one priority is that we understand what the Scripture says. Okay, so that's, that's our goal. Um, there's not always going to be a lot of fluff. You know, sometimes on Sunday when we preach, we're trying to inspire and encourage people in a different way. Uh, Wednesday night is really about understanding that we we want to take from what we learn here and go home, hopefully, uh, and study our Bibles better. That's the goal of Wednesday night. The second thing that we want to do, and this is second in line of priorities, first is understand. And I think if we come to understand what God is trying to communicate in any part of his word, it's going to change us. Okay. The second thing that I think we are aiming at is to apply it, to know what it is that the Lord requires of us. What does He want from us when we come to this passage of Scripture? I think meaning uh, here is one. We don't, we don't come to the Scripture and go, well, that means something different to you than it does to me. No, it means the same thing for everybody, but we may have different applications of it. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, He means one thing, but that may be applied in some different ways in different lives. And, and so we, uh, we, we need to know that there is application for it. There are multiple applications. Meaning is one. Uh, significance or application may be many. And then the third thing, hopefully, <laughs> if there's time and if there's energy for it, is to inspire us in these scriptures. Uh, we may not always find Wednesday night super inspiring, but I hope that you do. I hope that you go away inspired to obey God's word. So let's take a look in our text, and let's try to accomplish uh, these priorities tonight. As we look at Matthew chapter 5, these are the Beatitudes, and why don't we read them, and then I'm going to ask you to consider uh, something. In fact, let's consider this first before we read them. Let's remember where we are when this teaching took place. Where are we? Yeah, some kind of some kind of mount, right? Doesn't tell us where. Doesn't it's not it's not the Mount of Olives because that's in Jerusalem. We're in a we're in a mountainside in Galilee somewhere. 
Okay, we don't know exactly where, but probably uh, because of the terrain, good indication is it's the north, the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee area. Okay, and uh, let's remember who first heard this, because I think direct audience has some bearing on meaning. Who is it that first heard the Beatitudes? The disciples. So Jesus is speaking to those who are going to come after him, and for the most part, follow him, right? Even uh, some of the best disciples on some days don't follow him, and some of the worst disciples make terrible choices that affect their eternity, right? Judas, right? So we, we think of that, but he's speaking to his disciples here. So having that in mind, let's read this. Who'd like to read for us verses, um, let's read verse 1 through uh, 12, 1 through 12. Let's think about this for a moment. This is the first of many reversals, okay? Sometimes Jesus speaks to a present situation and talks about how it's going to change. And I'm so glad he does that because um, otherwise we might be overtaken by our present circumstances. I'm thankful that he, he speaks not only to where we are, but to what will be. And so we find this to be, this in verse 4 is our, our verse, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um, this is a blessing for the mourners, and it's kind of unexpected because one group of people that's to be pitied are those who are mourning, okay? Um, not We shouldn't exactly see an equivalent here between mourning and crying because those two aren't exactly the same thing, right? You can have tears of joy. Um, you can be crying for other kinds of reason. Mourning has to do with a disposition or a state that we get in. And so as we think about this, I want to keep in mind uh, that this is kind of an ironic suggestion uh, from Jesus. If he were not Lord, if he were not uh, able to perform here, this might almost be ridiculous. It might be like some kind of stoic promise that if you just get through life that it's going to be better. But but this is much more than that. This is Jesus promising something to those who mourn. Let's put this up on the screen. We'll have to do something better than that here. Yeah, right? Well, maybe we won't. All right. I'm just going to shut that off then. In fact, if I don't do this, the news is going to pop up probably, and we don't all want to look at that, do we? All right, so we'll just have to, uh, I don't have many slides. I just wanted to write a few things, but we can get through it without that. I was going to write mourn, in case you're curious. And the other word I was going to write is comforted. So if you want to write that in your notes ahead of time, it's already there. So mourn and comforted. Mourn is the one. And so he talks about those who mourn. The word is uh, that's used for mourn here, of course, we're, we could translate it from our English dictionaries, but it's better to understand what the term in Greek that stands behind this means. And it means to experience sadness as a result of some condition or circumstance. To experience sadness as the result of some condition or or circumstance. That sounds kind of elementary, but I think it's good to define our words. What is it that those who are mourning are mourning? We're going we're gonna to talk about that, but uh, is it anyone who mourns? Let's ask that question. Is Jesus saying uh, out there into the ether, 
anybody who's out there that's crying, or we decided that wasn't an equivalent term, but anyone who, who's out there that's mourning, you will be comforted. Is that what he's saying? Anyone and everyone for whatever reason? No, surely not. There must be something in mind, and I can think of some examples of that. It's not all who, uh, who mourn um, that will receive comfort. I think of people who mourn the wrong kinds of things. Think about what the book of Hebrews says about Esau when, when he sold his birthright. He cried tears, but he could not be consoled. Why? Well, he was mourning the wrong kinds of things. He was mourning as a, a wicked mourner, not a repentant mourner, but one of regret. There will be mourners in the time of the coming of the Messiah who will who will realize what they've done. The Bible says in Revelation 1-7, they will look upon him whom they've pierced and they will mourn. Okay, So this is not a mourning of repentance. This is a mourning of regret that they didn't recognize the son before his time. Are you, are you with me on that? That they had to wait until his coming or they waited until his coming to truly recognize and perceive who he is. And so they mourn, but it's not one of repentance. It's a mourning of of regret, and some will mourn the loss of their idols. I can hardly think that uh, that they can be comforted in this unless they find faith in Jesus. Because if we give up one idol and we don't turn to God, we find another idol, don't we? We're, we're perpetual. I think it was Calvin who said that the heart is a perpetual idol factory. It's always producing more and more. I think of the song we sing sometimes, Come Thou Fount. There's a verse that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We have that tendency within us to find idols of one kind or another, and we can hardly be comforted in our idolatry. In fact, one of the things that idolatry does is it dooms us to grieve over our lost idols. Put your confidence or, or make, a, make an, a person that you know an idol, and your heart will be broken. Think of that. But you put your confidence in God, you'll never be ashamed, as Scripture says. But, uh, you know, we, will be, we won't be comforted unless it's comforted by faith in Christ. It's not just any kind of mourning that guarantees this promise. And sadly, there are many, many who grieve in this life and sadly will grieve more in the next. Crying tears is no guarantee of consolation. Think about uh, how they... They sang this funeral dirge at the end of the book of Revelation. Babylon the Great has fallen, has fallen. That's a, that's a dirge that's sung to a, an idol of an empire that had, has died. And it's sad for those who put their confidence in that rather than in the Lamb. So as we, we think about this, it's not just anyone who mourns, but it's, it's a certain kind of mourner that this is describing. And we get our... Um, Old Testament information, there's kind of an informing passage in the Old Testament that helps us understand this one a little bit better. It's in Isaiah chapter 61, and you might remember Jesus came out of the wilderness after being tempted in the power of the Holy Spirit. He went into the synagogue and he read this passage in his own hometown. Do you remember what it was? Did I say it already? Did I spoil the surprise? What is it? Isaiah 61, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to preach the good news. I'm going to read it for you uh, here if I can find it. I've got it in my notes somewhere. Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me 
Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Um, Let me pause here just for a moment and mention this. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus quotes this, he doesn't mention the part about the vengeance of our God. Did you ever notice that? That's because it wasn't yet a day of vengeance. It was the day of the favor of God. Later, when he comes a second time, that will be the day of the vengeance of our God. So his coming is split in two. We see it through prophetic foreshortening in the Old Testament, the coming of the Lord, and kind of see this flat surface. But as Jesus comes, you begin to see the depth. You know what I mean? Like when you get up into the mountains, right here it looks like a flat surface, but you get up in the mountains and there's layers. And that's the way that the, the coming of Christ was, is that he, and will be, is that he came, but there is a second coming that will bring the vengeance of our God. Let's go on here. He says, uh, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. The two picks up from the, the previous statement. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to comfort, listen, comfort all who mourn. Do you hear that? It's Isaiah 61, to comfort all who mourn. And to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, an oil of joy instead of mourning, and a, a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. So this is the context with which um, we should understand this passage, is that Jesus is referring back to an, a particular anointing, an anointing, by that I mean a choosing and an empowering to do a certain task that Jesus as Messiah has been anointed to comfort those who mourn. Now, it says all who mourn, but we're understanding that in the sense of a certain category of people, those who mourn a certain something. And we'll talk, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But the context of Isaiah, if we're going to understand this, we need to understand that context a little bit. What is, uh, what is the the theme of Isaiah. What's the prophecy of Isaiah dealing with? Can anybody remember or sort of summarize? Get with the program or else? Judgment? A coming to the Messiah? And, and I think it's all of those. In fact, the first 39 chapters, there have been people who have been tempted to break the Isaiah into the, the book of Isaiah into two parts saying that there was one prophet who wrote 1 through 39 and another more optimistic guy <laughs> who wrote chapter 40 through 66 because you notice a dramatic change takes place in 40. Comfort, my people, comfort. And suddenly there's a new direction that's taking place. The first 39 chapters is judgment intermingled with hope. And then chapter 40 through 66 has a lot of hope, a lot of emphasis on the Messiah. We have our Isaiah 53 passage there that talks about the suffering servant and all of that. But the idea here is that though you failed Israel, there is hope. Though you will go through a time of exile, there will be redemption. And so in dealing with this, there's a lot of things that are being uh, dealt with. One is Israel's sin. We must understand that one reason they might be grieving or should be grieving is because of their own sin. Okay, Their own sin has caused them to be in a condition where they had to, they'll have to leave their land and be in exile. It's as if God is saying, if you won't live faithfully under the blessings that I've given you, then you're going to have to go under the um, 
overlordship of the heathen, and then you will learn to appreciate all that I've done for you. And so, of course, that will come in time, but they have to mourn their own sins. But there's a second thing that kind of goes hand in hand with that, and that's that once they get under those conditions, then they're mourning the fact that they have Gentile and sinful overlords. So there's the grief for their own sin. There's the grief for the fact that there are people sinning against them. Can you see that? And this is kind of what's mingled together in Isaiah. They're hoping for the Redeemer to come. Israel then is oppressed at the hands of her heathen captors. Her cities are in ruin. Um, The people know shame and dishonor. And some God's own people are on the bottom and the wicked are on the top. And so mourning is heard because the righteous suffer, because the wicked prosper, and because God has not acted as of yet to reverse the situation. And it's the same in the New Testament text. We can see these things. You know, there's often you hear the cry, how long, O Lord? Right? Have you read that in Scripture? How long, O Lord? This is the the cry of the heart that says, Lord, we are under circumstances that are against us. How long, O Lord, until you act? We're crying out. The first cry ought to be one of repentance. The second cry then is for God to vindicate his righteous. And so both of these conditions lead to a state of mourning that situation. The New Testament is the same thing. It's the all of creation is groaning, right? Romans chapter 8, waiting for the adoption to take place. And we groan within ourselves, our spirit groans, right? So we're, we're living in this state of flux where the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully received. You understand what I mean? That it's here, but it's not here in its fullness, it's been inaugurated, in other words, but it's not, it's not here in its fullness. We're not experiencing the full outworkings of Christ's rule. If we were, there wouldn't be violence in our streets. If the world had Christ as king, if the world had Christ as king, sin would be done away with. If the world had Christ as king, think about this. Policemen's only jobs, policemen, their only jobs would be to get cats out of trees. We can do it with all of our security companies. We don't need them anymore. Think about the implications of if there were not sin in the world. Sin is expensive, isn't it? Think about all that's done and spent in terms of credit card fraud and all that's spent in terms of home security and all that's spent uh, in terms of insurance. Like if everybody just did the right thing, a lot of times we wouldn't need that. There's a lot of things that might change if Jesus were king. In fact, everything. It would flip everything on its head, and it would be beautiful. So there's people crying out here. And in the meantime, the people of God are still persecuted. Um, in the New Testament, they, they don't yet see the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The Son of Man has not yet come into His glory. And God's will is not yet completely done on earth as it is in heaven. And as far as the present world is concerned, the present, uh, the wicked hold the upper hand against the righteous. So the righteous, therefore, cannot but mourn until that end time reversal that takes place. It's not possible for us to be content with the status quo. And you may feel it now that, that those who have the say in terms of our moral direction, uh, 
are not those who stand behind pulpits and who sit in pews. Are you, are you with me on that? Those that have uh, a lot of responsibility for our moral direction sit in uh, de- sit behind desks somewhere, perhaps in Hollywood or New York, somewhere where they're dictating what this world shall believe. And we're not we're not like innocent bystanders in all this. Though we, we've been we've been in collusion with the wickedness of our age. I'm not saying you or me necessarily. I hope not, but as a culture. Like, we're not been so caught off guard. We've been complicit in all of this, but this is the direction it's going. So what kind of mourners then is Jesus talking about? I, I see four options, and uh, actually three options, sorry. I had a fourth one, but I took it out because I don't think it's very likely. And uh, so when Jesus talks about mourners, I don't think he means those who mourn with other people. Although that is a New Testament um, instruction is to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. But I don't think that's what he has in mind here. I think he's got uh, probably three options, and maybe they're all one option. I'm just going to give you a hint that that's where we're going. Uh, first is uh, those who are mourning in repentance for their own sin. Okay, So maybe Jesus here has in mind those who are mourning in repentance for their own sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. In essence, he would be saying, if this is the single item, he would be saying, if you're mourning because of your sins, be comforted because you will be forgiven. Okay? It could be saying that. Uh, but it may be saying that if we've overall taken the, um, the proper attitude or proper disposition towards sin, then there will be comfort that comes from that. James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10 you may remember this. Uh, resist, it says, uh, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Uh, and then it says, um, it says, repent or weep, wail, and mourn. Turn your laughter into mourning and your joy into tears. Weep, wail, and mourn. It uses the same word that it used, that Jesus uses here in Matthew 5 about mourning. And so there's appropriate response to our sin to mourn over it. That doesn't, as I said, mourning doesn't mean crying tears. You can cry, the littlest kids can do this, cry crocodile tears. I saw a little kid at the grocery store one time. He couldn't have been one year old. And he was looking at me and smiling, but he was making this crying sound and tears were running down his face. But he was looking at me saying, his mom couldn't see him from where I, where I was. She, he was facing away from her. But it was as if he was saying to me, uh, I know how to manipulate this lady. <laughs> so um, we can cry tears and they not be authentic. That's not what this is talking about. Mourning is a true disposition of sorrow from our circumstances and circumstances maybe that we've created. Okay, so one, one possibility here is that those who mourn are those who are mourning in repentance for their sin. The second one is those who are mourning over persecution, and this would be the sin of others against them. Okay? So this, this makes a little bit of sense in light of the fact that Jesus is talking to his disciples who will go out and preach the gospel to the world, and they'll not be received everywhere they go, and they're going to face persecution. Paul says, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And they expected it. We get surprised if we're persecuted, but they expected it. Like They remember all the instructions Jesus gave about persecution. If they persecute you, 
pray for them. If they persecute you, rejoice because you have a great reward in heaven. Do good to them, right? Those are the things that follow. And um, <laughs> Peter, I think it is, that says, why do you act surprised if you're facing some kind of surprising thing? Uh, don't you know that there's going to be a fiery trial that faces you when you try to live for God? They're surprised that you don't go to their carousing and drinking parties. Uh, you've set yourself apart. It's in uh, one of uh, Peter's epistles. So there is the sins that happen against believers. And the disciples, as the first hearers of this, this would have ministered to them that if you mourn because of the rejection of others, you will be comforted. You'll be comforted by God's acceptance for one. Okay. So that's a possibility. The third possibility is that sometimes people, uh, the mourners, are those who are mourning the wicked world, and this is just the sinful condition, okay? There's a sinful condition around us. I, I think we have to realize the world is not as it was created to be. I, I often hear this skewed view. You'll hear it on TV, or sometimes people will say it, like, if God is so good, why didn't he make the world this way? Well, what's the answer to that? He didn't make it this way. This is this way because of our choices, right? Like human choice, maybe not your choice, but we're all complicit in this. We're all complicit in making the world a worse place than what it should be. So we've all bought into the fact that we want God to stay, at least at first. We changed our mind on that, I hope. We want God to be at the center. We're saying be at the center of it all. And then life comes into balance as we let God be center. But until then, it's all out of kilter. And we live in that sinful condition that Romans 8, 18 through 25 describes where the whole, all of creation is groaning in eager anticipation for the adoption to take place. And our hearts groan too. Why? Because this is not the way it should be. And we recognize that. And we sorrow when we lose somebody to death. And we wish that it weren't that way. It's the sinful condition. It's not that they died because of a direct result of one of their sins. They died as a result of a sinful condition in which they participated. Each of us is doomed to death unless Jesus returns first. Right? And that's part of that sinful condition. But maybe it's groaning all of that. And here's the interesting thing as I was studying this the scholars are divided with some heavy hitters in different categories. Like the two main ones happen to be um, that some think that this is mourning that Jesus is talking about over our own sins. There's some heavy hitters in that category, and there are some that think that there are. this is talking about um, crying out for vindication because of the persecution of the wicked. There's some heavy hitters in that category in terms of Bible scholars. And then there's some that say it's both. And I, that's what I want to suggest to you, that maybe there, it's talking about the sinful condition. I think because this is so intermingled, it's hard, it's hard not to generalize. And what I mean is that the condition that sent God's people in Isaiah, uh, well, it doesn't happen until later, but in God's people in the Old Testament into exile was their sin, and the instrument of their judgment was another sinful nation, Right? And then they cried out against that sinful nation um, that God would vindicate them. And so they had prayers both of repentance and retribution 
Simply put, there is sin, ours and others, and it's a reason to mourn. Okay, think about that. You remember, there's a lot of passages that relate to this, but God sent the Babylonians. He told them in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, he sent in them. Okay, I'm sending the Babylonians an army from the north. They're going to come through. And then he also says, even though they've been sent by me in the sense of, this is my instrument of judgment, they too will be judged for their participation in this, for the way they mistreat you. That's interesting, isn't it? He's going to judge them too. So you can see both of these things working out. The mourners then would be those who sorrow because of sin. Their own sins, which have separated us from God, and the sins of others, which we feel. We've been victimized by both ourselves and by other people. And that's a word I hesitate to use because of its modern abuses. So let's be, let's be clear that we're all victims of our own sins first before we're victims of anybody else's sin. Now, I don't mean chronologically, but I mean in priority, that we are victims first and foremost of our own sin. Then uh, uh, we are victims also uh, as a result of the, the sins of other people. And so, uh, you know that none of us are victims of God. God's always been good to us. And even in His discipline, we're not His victims. Instead, we're re- recipients of His holy paternal love for us. So, no one can say here, God has been so mean to me that I'm a victim because of what God's done to me. I'm laughing a little bit because doesn't that sound ridiculous? We're not victims of God. We are recipients at times of His paternal holy love, which is discipline for our holiness. But we're not victims of God. Amen. It doesn't get a resounding amen, so I'll say it myself. But I think it's true. Robert Mount says that the, uh, the mourners are those who are filled with deep regret for their own waywardness and for the evil so prevalent in the world. Those who mourn are not simply those who have gone through difficult times, but those who, have under, uh, who understand that all suffering in the world stems from the sinful and self-destructive human tendency to act as if God does not exist. And all of this could be summarized as those who are mourning over the present condition sin has brought. Now, this is not, um, I want to be clear on this, this is not a command to mourn. When Jesus says, blessed are the mourn for they should be comforted, this is not him saying to us, um, you guys need to get on your sackcloth and ashes and make sure you're mourning. This is him recognizing the sinful condition of the world and the result that it produces upon people who are really turning to him. Okay, Do you understand the difference between those two things? Christ is not saying that if you're not sad, you're not saved. Um, he is not holding this up as a preferable condition for Christians, as if mourning is uh, a state in which we should, we should envy. Like, if we're not sad now, we should hope to be. That's not really the point here. So what he's asking of us here, uh, Jesus is not here trying to get more mourners in the world. He is acknowledging what already happens in the world because of sin. And he's promising to us, this is the purpose here, is to console those who are already mourning sin's effects, their own, the sins of other people toward them, 
the sinful state of the world, which has created a system in which the righteous are oppressed with the unrighteous as the kings. So he recognizes this condition, but he's saying, if you're trusting in me, hold on, you will find consolation. And I think that's, that's important to keep in mind. Leon Morris in his commentary says, perhaps we should bear in mind that typically the worldly take lighthearted attitudes to the serious issues of life. In fact, that's very evident in our modern pleasure-loving generation. And they're seeking after self-gratification and pleasure. They don't grieve over sin or evil. Maybe Jesus is saying here that our values are wrong and that it's those who mourn over evil who are truly blessed. Now they mourn, but later they will see God's triumph over all the evil in the world. This is the heart condition of those who recognize sin for what it is. It's not Jesus saying, I want you to be sad. There is a proper response to evil, and the end result of that response is consolation. You understand what I mean by that? With sin, we, we don't want to be the victims of it, but in some ways, you realize we, we wouldn't want it any other way. Some people wouldn't. Think of uh, violence. We hate to see violence in our world, don't we? But we glorify it in our entertainment. And we aren't ready uh, to change that. We've, we find it too interesting to do that. We just don't want to see it happen to us. And so I would challenge you, tell me if these aren't connected. The increase in violence is not somehow connected to the desensitization that happens through our fun. We have movies and shows and video games that glorify it. I uh, saw the other day a little kid, little kid wearing a, I don't know if you've heard of this, but a Squid Games t-shirt. So there's a show that's out, I think it's on Netflix called Squid Games. And uh, it's a violent series that trivializes murder, and it makes a game out of it. People can, with, uh, can win money by participating in these games where if they lose, they die. And so that's the gist of it, and it's really violent. There's a Forbes article out that says players actually want to return to the dystopian playground, a deadly casino coated in candy pink and blue, where the trigger-happy guards have no face, no personality, and seemingly no soul. And it's all for the amusement of a small group of billionaires, numbered to, uh, numb to a life of excess who view poverty as an opportunity and human misery as mere entertainment. So it's, it's pretty violent. I've not seen it myself. I've seen previews of it. And uh, it provokes an interesting question, which is, what kind of risk would you take to win money? Uh, but I wonder how responsible it is to let little kids watch it, uh, who have the life experience. They don't have the life experience to think through the implications of it all. And for adults, is it really great entertainment? I just, I, I wonder. But those things are like passed off. Like if anything's on, you just, just watch it. And they, people let their kids watch stuff like that. And how can we not be desensitized to it? How can we not think that evil is okay and be numb to it when that's what we view as entertainment? And so I'm not here trying to condemn television or anything like that. I'm just saying that uh, in some ways we find sinfulness as a culture very entertaining. And we need to ask some serious questions about that. What's our proper response? I'd like you to notice this next part. We're 
we're cruising on here to the next part of this because we're dealing with one verse tonight, and we can fill up 45 minutes with that. Uh, it says, those who mourn, and we're, I'm taking the position tonight, it's those who mourn over the effects of sin. Personal sin, sin against them, sin of the world. They will be comforted, comforted. And hear that. Will be comforted. Comforted, the word means to call to one side in order to instruct, request, encourage, or console. I think this is a beautiful word. The word is something like parakaleo, I think, is the, the word that's there. And it means to call, call to the side of. So it's as if God is saying, I'm going to, Jesus is saying in particular here, um, those who mourn will be comforted. I'll bring them alongside and comfort them. I think that's beautiful. Comforted. Some of the Old Testament promises, you can look these up. I'll read them and give you the reference. Psalm 126, verse 4 through 6. This is one where they sang it as they're returning from exile, it would appear. And they talked about how uh, we couldn't believe it. It's as if we were dreaming. Remember that? Psalm 126, the end of it, you'll remember. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Beautiful. It's talking in agricultural terms about reaping the harvest that we've sown in tears, but now we're reaping in joy. And this is certainly the case for those who are trusting in Christ. And then the Psalms, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 3, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and then jumping forward a little bit to comfort all who mourn. So I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, somewhere around the 300s B.C., they, uh, the Hebrew people created a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in Greek. And they called it the 70. This is what's rumored. I don't know if this is how it happened. But that 70 different scholars, maybe 72, went out and translated the Scripture from Hebrew into Greek, and they all came back with exactly the same translation. Maybe. I don't know. But the result is that they call it the Septuagint or the LXX, which is 70. 70 translators produced the Greek New Test or the Greek Old Testament. Now, the reason that's important is that the Greek Old Testament becomes the basis for the New Testament church's Old Testament scriptures. So they don't all go back to the Hebrew uh, as, as much. Some of them do. I think Jesus probably did. But as Matthew is writing his gospel, or whoever translated Matthew writes the gospel, when he quotes, and most of the quotes from the Old Testament are either in Greek, from the Greek Old Testament, or from a mixture between Greek and Hebrew Old Testaments, as if they're calling from memory, Oh, yeah, I remember it from the King James in the NIV, and they kind of mix it together. It's kind of like what it would be. Okay, so what's interesting here is this Psalm 61 where it says, He will comfort all who mourn. It's the exact Greek words for comfort and mourn that we have in Matthew 5.4. What that tells us is that this is spot on a quote from Isaiah. We need to know that, and what he wants us to know is that he will comfort them. He will comfort those who are His. The 
mourn, they that mourn will be comforted. Who does the comforting here? It doesn't, it doesn't say. Let's look at our passage here in Matthew 5, 4. Um, look at uh, what it said. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Does it tell there who's going to do the comforting? Does it? I mean, does it explicitly say that's what I'm getting? Getting at? No, it doesn't. And here's what's interesting. This is what's called a divine passive. I've probably read 12, 12 commentaries on this, and probably nine of them brought this up. The divine passive means that something is not mentioned, an action is mentioned, but the one who is doing the action is not mentioned. And that in the New Testament, this is a Semitic way of referring to God. Just like when we hear kingdom of heaven, we're not hearing kingdom of God because a Jewish tendency is to steer clear of saying God and referring to him because you don't want to take his name in vain. And so this is what's known as the divine passive where an action is mentioned, but the person doing the action isn't mentioned. It's hinted at. It's a Semitic way of saying that God will comfort you. Listen, who's doing the comforting here? If, if that's true, who's doing the comforting in this action? You can answer if you want. God's doing it, isn't he? He's doing the comforting in this regard. So this is, uh, I think this is the divine passive. They're right on with it. You can see this thing happen again and again. And in fact, we may want to mention that, th- that here, maybe Jesus is the one who is in mind because uh, if you look back in the time of the rabbis, I think this probably started just prior to the coming of Jesus. Uh, they started to find in rabbinic writings, the Messiah was called uh, Menachem or Menachem. Have you heard that before? Menachem. Okay. And you know what that means? It means the comforter. The comforter. Menachem. Okay. So Jesus is being referred to by this name or the Messiah. I don't think they know this is Jesus yet in those rabbinical writings. They're just referring to him as Menachem, okay, the comforter. So it's no wonder in the Bible it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. Guess what he was waiting for? The consolation of Israel, Menachem. This is a reference to the Messiah. He's looking forward to the consoler. And remember, this goes back to Isaiah 61, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to comfort all who mourn. What will the Messiah do? He's going to comfort those who mourn. Not everyone who mourns, but those who mourn in a particular way. He will be their comforter. And I'd like you to notice here that the tense is future. He will comfort. He will comfort. God's people will be comforted when He sweeps away the ills of the present world and takes away their sin and makes all things new. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 5. Listen, uh, Jesus has already done the work and said it's finished, but we, we await the, the completeness of our salvation. You, un- you understand what I mean by that. I'm not trying to negate that, that it's already been accomplished, but, but there's the fullness of it that we'll experience. The New Testament has salvation in three tenses. Did you know that? That where those who uh, have been saved, where those who are being saved, and where those who will be saved. In three tenses, 
That's an interesting study if you're interested in taking that up. But listen to Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell among them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Listen. <laughs> These aren't tears of mourning, but as I think about this, it's moving. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes, and, the, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus said what? Blessed are the mourn, they will be comforted. John writes here in the book of Revelation as he's received this revelation, this is trustworthy and true. He will comfort those who mourn. In the Net Bible, the note on this says, the promise they will be comforted is the first of several reversals Note, noted in these promises. The Beatitudes and the reversals that accompany them serve in the sermon as an invitation to enter God's care because one can know God's care for those, one can only know God's care for those who completely turn to Him. So it challenges disciples to do something as we think about this, our present condition in facing a world that's full of sin, it can sometimes be overwhelming. I was thinking as preparing this message, there's not a place to go into it in detail, but how it tells us in, uh, was it Jude, where it talks about Lot, how his righteous soul was vexed with, uh, with sinfulness of Sodom. There's appropriate response to us is to, to love the world like Jesus did, but to hate the sin of the world like Jesus did. And I think that ought to be the natural disposition to know that in, fi- in spite of the fact that we live in a sinful world, God will comfort those who are His, and that sorrow will not be the last word on us. And so for that, we need to see life in light of the future outcome and not just the present conditions. We need to hear this challenge because we're so short-sighted when it comes to our suffering. Eugene Peterson said, um, one of his books, most people live from the perspective of the last 10 minutes of their lives. You know what I mean by that? Like, whatever happened in the last 10 minutes, that's our outlook. Man, we got to be driven by something bigger than that. That's very short-sighted. That's myopic. That's short-sighted, like seeing right here. If you're a believer, you cast your eyes to the far horizon and realize that God has promised something Beyond that, we don't just look at the short and the here and now. We look beyond that and realize God has done something worth rejoicing about. We need to hear that. What if we lived in light of the future promise instead? I think we might mourn with hope in those circumstances. And I think a second response would be to cling less tightly to this world and more tightly to Him. 
for those who, as God's people, find their current situation intolerable and incomprehensible, there are better times ahead. The world, I, I, I'd like to note, this uh, F.W. F. Borum kind of planted this thought in my mind regarding this, that the world has no beatitude for the broken and contrite. The world doesn't have any consolation for that. Have you lost somebody? What does the world have to offer? Nothing. Are you down and out? What does the world have to offer? Nothing. They might kick you and take the rest of your stuff. Right? What kind of beatitude does the world offer? It offers no vindication or justice for the poor or the victimhood we all face. The blessed mourner sounds so strange to them. Yet, this is the quiet hope of every mourner. I think when people mourn and they cry out, they're hoping for a change. There's no reason it should be except that he who promised it is faithful. And so, while the world has no beatitude for the mourner, God does. Aren't you glad for that? We can turn to Christ and find hope. There needs to be a solid understanding of this scripture if we're to be all that God wants us to be and to have the right perspective. And I think part of it is that we need to understand that the world is not as it's supposed to be. Okay, When people say, well, this is just the way the world is, or, or even when we assume that like nature, we should just let nature run its course, there's a romantic notion that started maybe 300 years ago that uh, whatever is naturally is what should be. Like just go with your natural instinct on these things. Well, if you're a Christian, you realize that our natural instincts are often wrong. So we can't just go with our natural instinct. Well, let's just let that, your kid be natural. Don't let him be natural. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. <laughs> the rod of discipline drives it from them, right? We don't just let things naturally go. The world is not as it's supposed to be. And then those who do right often suffer while the wicked prosper. And we're going to see that in our mind as a contradiction of Old Testament Scripture, but it's only because we're looking at it in the moment. I'd like to encourage you to read Psalm 73. Psalm 73, we're not going to turn there tonight, but I'll, I'll reference it and summarize. The psalmist talks about how good God is to Israel, but his foot almost slipped. He saw how the wicked prospered. And he began to contemplate their life. Why is it, God, that you're letting, and this is my paraphrase, you're letting the wicked prosper while the righteous are dealing with difficulty? They have no sickness in their bodies. They have all that they need. They don't have any injustices worked against them. But look at the righteous. They, have, they seem to be going through the ringer. And he says, I had this thought, and then I walked into the house of God, and I saw their end. It was a slippery slope. And so if you see the wicked prospering, you need to realize as a Christian, it's for a moment. Think about how often the Bible says, you who are rich need to weep well and mourn because your riches are departing. It's not saying riches are bad. It's saying if your confidence in riches, then you better find something else to be confident in because it's going to go the way of all flesh. So we often look at it that way. The third thing is that this... Um, this doesn't undermine God's justice, as I just referred to, who promised the righteous would prosper, and the righteous will prosper. As we think of Job, remember how his friends came and they accused him? And Job's got this, this perspective. 
I know that my Redeemer lives. In the end, I will stand on the earth. Though my flesh be destroyed, yet with my eyes, my own eyes, I will see God. He's got a different perspective. And in the end, his friends all had to come say that. (laughs) I can see it from my own childhood, the time where one kid has been done injustice, and all the other kids, their moms made him come line up and tell them they're sorry. (laughs) God did that to all of Job's friends. You need to go tell Job you're sorry. Uh, what they've said, what you've said concerning me is not right. And so go tell Job you're sorry and offer some sacrifices. And so um, we often think that God's justice is being undermined, but it's not. In the end, we'll see it for what it is. And then the scripture sees, sees things in light of the end. A fifth thing is the end will be that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will be judged. And the sixth thing related to this is those who grieve their own sins looking to God will be forgiven. And the middle ground between our mourning and our consolation is a place where we have to find comfort in the promise and the assurance. You understand what I mean by that? That there is a a comfort that comes simply from the promise. We're not feeling the full effects of that consolation just yet. We're still perhaps in the middle of mourning. But the comfort in the middle of mourning is the promise that God says, you will be comforted in that by me. Man, it's good. Craig Blomberg says in his uh, commentary, God will comfort now in part and fully in the future. The Christian mourning does not outweigh happiness as the most uh, dominant characteristic of the Christian life. Listen to F.F. F. Bruce. He says, but, but says Jesus... Here is no ground for complaint, but rather for exultation. People such as he describes are the truly happy and fortunate people. On them, their friends should press warm and sincere congratulations. The future, the future is with them and not with the hard-boiled pushers who put their own interests first and get on in the world. The rewards are not arbitrary. They are the natural fruit of the qualities that are commended. What's the quality that's commended? Mourning. Interesting, isn't it? What's the reward of that? It's comfort. So that's the natural reward in, in that, that kind of response. Listen, Jesus won't let us be victims. He won't. These words rebuke our pity parties. We can't be pitiable because... He calls the mourners among the blessed. Now, we might be in a sad state of affairs at the moment, but don't the words of Jesus bring hope? We have an, we have an island fortress, figuratively speaking. Makarios, right? We are we're the blessed. You know what I mean? Island fortress? He says, you're blessed. They called the island of Cyprus Makarios. You're blessed. It was a place that was self-sustained. Whatever your lot is in, in life, you've got, if you're trusting in Christ, you've got an island fortress that you're resting in. And I hope you'll be encouraged in that. Amen. All right, stand with me if you would. Maybe at the moment you are going through something or facing something in life that's that's brought mourning. It's not certainly just anything we're talking about, but maybe it's related to the situations we discuss, mourning for our sin, mourning because there's sin that's been um, sinned against you.
and maybe it's the sinful condition of the world, whatever's taken our heart in this regard, let's turn it to the Lord. Father, we thank you that you've given us such a great promise through Jesus that this world will not have a final word on all of this, but you will. And we are not uh, naive and we're not uh, entering into this uh, foolheartedly, but Lord, with uh, great expectation and good reason. We know you're a keeper of promises and somehow you uh, bring about this reversal of fortune. We thank you, God, that you are you are Menachem, the consoler, the comforter, the consolation of your people. And I pray you help us to, to uh, rely heavily upon that in times where we are going through mourning of one kind or another. We trust you, Lord, with that. We pray that you help us to have the, that eternal perspective that we've talked about tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.